I'm going to start with my three-minute testimony. Thank you, Abram. You do, you do good. You, you're good at announcements. You, Abram, do them, do them again. Um, my three-minute testimony is not about some wonderful thing that happened to me, but a wonderful thing that's going to happen to me. I'm already grateful for it in advance. I'm going on sabbatical. So this is my last sermon for three months, and um, I'm going to miss church. You can't come to church when you're on sabbatical. You can't come to your own church. You can go to other churches. So I'll go to my wife Julia's church, and I'll probably go to Church of the Good Shepherd during this time. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with sabbaticals, it's kind of a thing for uh, clergy, for pastors, full-time pastors to get a three-month sabbatical once every seven years. So my last sabbatical was in 2000. So that, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not overdoing it on the sabbatical thing. And uh, they're, they're, it's really great because it gives you a chance to unplug from just your daily routines, get a little more space for prayer, uh, usually some kind of study. Last sabbatical I did, I read nothing but science, and it was actually quite fruitful for, for other things that developed in ministry after that. Without all that reading, I wouldn't have been able to walk through some open doors. Uh, this, this year, this time, I'm going to be reading up on... Uh, on uh, how scripture has been used through the history of the church and, and even in Israel um, in preparation for a manuscript that Emily and I are going to write, start writing when I'm done with sabbatical called Sola Jesus. So that's kind of exciting. So I, I will be meeting with Emily to talk, to talk theology and, and scripture, but not cha talk church business. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm just also very thankful to the church that the church is in a state where I can take a sabbatical. Like, you know, when we were planting, I was like, oh gosh, I'm like, I'm so overdue for a sabbatical. Uh, it's, it's not going to happen before I retire and, and things have gone so well in the church plan. Our board said, no, we want our pastors having sabbaticals. Ken, you're first. Emily, you're next. So, um, so I'm like, thank you for making church happen so that I can take sabbatical and giving and serving and showing up on Sunday. And I'm like, I'm not nervous about anything leaving the church for three months, except maybe some of the details about the, how the chairs are set up. I just I tried to download it to a few guys who were faithful, faithful in the setting up the chairs. So if the chairs go to hell in my absence, don't be blaming me, you know. <laughs> I think, they'll, I think they'll be doing just fine. Um, am I worried about the preaching? No. Am I worried about the finances? No. I'm worried about the chairs. So that uh, we are known by our anxieties. Mine are minor, so I'm a lucky man. Well, so I have a weakness for uh, Jesus, uh, the image of Jesus as a shepherd who leads his flocks. It's, it's a very... Um, deeply rooted biblical image, God as the shepherd, Israel as the sheep of his pasture, Ezekiel the prophet has this diatribe about what a crappy job the leaders are doing and I myself will come and I myself will lead my flocks. It's a very strong motif in the Bible. Um, it's, it's also kind of personal for me. Like my, my dad was in World War II. He was a 19-year-old uh, tech sergeant in the European theater. He was in Patton's Third Army. And um, as a tech sergeant, he was, uh, had a radio pack on his back, which kind of made him a target. And he found himself in what turned out to be, to date, the, the biggest mortar shelling of World War II up, up to that point in time uh, 
November 11th, 1944, and he's, he's like running in the midst of this barrage of mortar fire, and he's, I think he was running across a, like a wood plank that was, that was crossing a creek or a small little stream, and like a cow blew up next to him, hit by a mortar shell, and it was just utter chaos. My dad was not very, my dad was not, um, I didn't even get to appreciate that. That was awesome. Thank you. To err as human to forgive bovine. That's, that's wonderful. So he's, he's, he's not like in a religious phase of his life at all at this time. And he found himself as he's running through this carnage just yelling Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me, etc. He's yelling Psalm 23 from memory, a memory he didn't even know that he had. And he ends up at the base of a tree. A mortar shell lands right near him, kills the guy on his right, the guy on his right, on his left, puts a, a injures um, hit the back of his knee, and, and a mortar fragment goes in the back of his helmet, up and deflected around and out the front. And he gets like the, the war injury that gets you out of the war. Uh, and a little bit of uh, compensation, and it was like, wow, a big, a big deal. So I'm here, you know, having a father, you know, scream Psalm 23. The next scene is I'm with uh, Julia at the Detroit Opera House um, last year, a couple of years ago, for Handel's Messiah. It was a jazz version of Handel's Messiah. And during the intermission, Julia is like a classically trained vocalist and organist. And she just turns to me and kind of whimsically, playfully sings, and he shall lead his flock like a shepherd, you know. And he shall lead his flock. Bom, 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 bom. And I'm listening to her. It's kind of fun. It's an intermission time. And then I'm like, I'm getting choked up. And I'm like crying while she's singing. And I'm thinking, what? What was that all about? And I tell my older sister, Nancy, I said, I had this weird experience. And Julia was singing this song. She said, well, don't you remember? Our mother used to sing that every Christmas Eve. She was the alto in a duet at the Christmas Eve service. And she was always a little flat. <laughs> I was like, you know, it was like it was touching me at some deep level. The series that we're uh, in now is exploring Soul of Jesus as an alternative, or Jesus only is the translation of the um, imperfect Latin. It should be solus Jesus. But um, sola Jesus as an alternative to one of the main slogans of the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, sola scriptura. Uh, and if you recall, sola scriptura shifted the locus of authority from the church as the arbiter, final arbiter of truth to scripture alone, sola scriptura. It was a, certainly an improvement, but it obscured the fact that Scripture actually vests soul authority in Jesus alone if there's to be a sola. Um, so our sola Jesus text today is Jesus, the good shepherd who guides his flock in John chapter 10. 
So if you happen to have your Bible, you could turn to John 10. We'll be looking at the first uh, four or five verses of that. Um, The reason I'm focusing on this is that sola Jesus only makes sense if we actually have a reasonable expectation and assurance that we can actually hear the voice of the shepherd. That there is a shepherd who has a voice, who speaks to us, who can get through to us. And it's possible for people like us to actually hear God's voice. Um, you know, as important as scripture is, and it's hugely important as the book that Jesus regarded as sacred, uh, bears witness to him. There's no replacement, though, for hearing God's voice. It's, it's, scripture is an aid, but it is not a substitute. It's the difference between means and end we're talking about here. Uh, last week, if you recall, uh, and I'm sure you did if you were here because you were paying such close attention and I was being so cogent in my presentation. Um, last week, we said that sola scriptura came with a co- corollary, that scripture is clear, absolutely clear about everything we need to know. It's called the perspicuity of scripture. Um, Sola Scriptura was an attempt to gain and assert certainty in the realm of truth. Uh, And the effect of this certainty, which is supported by the Sola Scriptura thing, is actually historically what that certainty has done. That belief that we can know with certainty what Scripture says about anything that's important is it tends historically to override our God-given instinct to recoil at the prospect of harming other people. Uh, This instinct to recoil at the prospect of harming other people is affirmed over and over in Scripture. Do unto others. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love Love doesn't harm the neighbor. If our reading of Scripture leads us to do things that are harmful to people, we are supposed to rethink our reading of Scripture. And Scripture itself has inserted this tradition in order to get that going. But historically, sola scriptura and the certainty that it promises, it's really a false promise, has been used to support um, the exclusion of the Gentiles Uh, the legitimacy of slavery, uh, anti-Semitism up until Vatican II, the exclusion from women, uh, of women from leadership. Actually, the view that that was traditional was that women were an inferior part of the human race compared to men. The prohibition of interracial marriage, the banning of divorced and remarried people from communion, uh, discrimination against LGBT people. I mean, this is a big issue. It's fascinating to me that John 10, which we're going to read in just a moment, follows John chapter 9. Doesn't that make sense? 9, then 10. This is the Bible makes real good sense on the chapter numberings. Um, In John chapter 9, what's going on is Jesus heals the man who was born blind. And then that gets him into the man who was born blind, was healed on the Sabbath, which puts him at odds with the leaders at the time who are upset that he was healed on the Sabbath and get him to kind of denounce Jesus as a Sabbath breaker. The man who was healed by Jesus refuses to do so, and he's thrown out of the synagogue. So he's expelled from the synagogue for being healed by Jesus and not announcing him. So you, you can imagine that Jesus would be a little peeved at the shepherds of Israel for doing this sort of thing and for harming this man that he had just healed by putting him out of the synagogue. It's like 
What's worse, to be blind or to be put out from your community? Like, it's a toss-up. So it's like they almost did worse to him than Jesus did in healing the man. So he's got a little annoyance in his voice in John 10. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in another way is a thief and a bandit. He's talking about leaders here. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. So this is like based on the understanding of how sheep were cared for in these Palestinian villages. In these small villages, each family probably owned two or three sheep. And the sheep would be part of like the village flock. And they would be kept at night in a pen that was demarcated by a common courtyard which surrounded by uh, the small homes of the villagers with a gate to the courtyard manned by a gatekeeper uh, during the night. In the morning, um, the shepherd would come. Often it would be like one of the older uh, children in the village designated as the shepherd for these sheep. And, and that shepherd would come in the morning to lead the sheep out to pasture and to, you know, in, in, the, in the grasslands and to find a nearby watering hole and then be brought back at night for the sheepfold. The gatekeeper would let the shepherd into the courtyard and the shepherd would gather the sheep, uh, lead them out, and the shepherd would use a distinctive call. So it would be a whistle, it might be a flute, um, and this call would be recognized by the sheep. In, in larger towns, they would have like a big open sheepfold in the middle of the, uh, of the um, open area, little rocks uh, around it, and the opening where the shepherd would lie down and sleep at night. So later he talks about, you, you, uh, you have to come through me. That's probably the image there. And then different shepherds would come, and they would each have a distinctive call, a distinctive voice, and the sheep that were associated with that shepherd would then gather around that shepherd and he'd lead them out for pasture and for going to the watering hole and come back. So this is the picture uh, behind the scene that Jesus is depicting. And the part that I didn't include right at the end is kind of a cute part. It's like he used this figure of speech, but the disciples didn't know what he was talking about. Which I thought is kind of funny because they're being like sheep-like and they're like, I don't, I don't get it. Um, sometimes the individual sheep would be named by the shepherd. And the sheep would know their name, just like a dog knows its name and respond, responding to the master's voice. So voice recognition is crucial, right? I mean, it's emphasized like three or four times in those four verses that I just opened with. Uh, without voice recognition, sheep couldn't follow a shepherd out in the open, which is what they did. They were just like able to go in and out and, and just walk along because the sheep would follow along recognizing the shepherd's voice. Without that, they would have to be like cattle who are, you know what, corralled by people on horses and sheepdogs that kind of keep them all in a group because they're not going to, cattle aren't going to follow a shepherd. So the question is, are we really like sheep in our relation to God in this way, 
Is that like an apt metaphor for who we as human beings are in relation to God? Are we like sheep in relation to a shepherd? Sheep are uh, one of a limited number of animal species that have been successfully domesticated. Actually, not many critters have been successfully domesticated by human beings. Domesticated meaning bred to coexist with humans um, peacefully. Uh, in the case of sheep, um, sheep are also dependent utterly on humans for survival. Um, you know, like pigs can be domesticated, but they can also exist in the wild. Sheep, once they're domesticated, they, they can't be, they can't exist in the wild. They're utterly dependent on humans for their well-being. So what if humans are like sheep in this respect in relation to God? That we have also been bred, we have evolved, we've been designed, whatever metaphor you'd like to use, we've been evolved to live in God's company. That's just who we are, like sheep have been bred to live in the company of human beings. Here, here's the thing, in modern society, we think, don't we, just like we feel, we think of hearing God's voice as like a specialty trait, right, that only certain human beings have. And they're human beings who wear Birkenstocks and drink kombucha and they, they, their personal hygiene isn't that good. They're, it's, you know, it's like a personal trade for a few wild-eyed mystics or dreamy, intuitive types. Uh, by contrast, traditional societies just assumed their anthropology, their, their understanding of the human being was that human beings are spiritual beings who can interact, of course, with divine entities and transcendent powers. Of course, human beings can, can play with the gods, can interact with the gods, can deal with trans, the realm of transcendent power. Everybody, every idiot knows that about human beings. That was the traditional view. So in, in a sense, the sheep metaphor corrects for our modern distorted idea that actually disqualifies us from thinking that we are the kind of beings who could hear God's voice. Um, you know, sheep are not known for their intellectual prowess. Now, as I was reading up on this, they're, they're much more intelligent than their stereotypes. So I just want to give sheep their due. They're not like the dumbest of the, of the domesticated by animals by any stretch. But, you know, compared to the shepherd, IQ score, you know, there's a gap there. Um, sheep can recognize the shepherd's voice, but they're not talking particle physics with the shepherd, right? Uh, out in the fields at night. They've got enough voice recognition capacity to follow the shepherd to get green pasture and to get water every day and to stay alive and to thrive. So the bar of understanding for sheep isn't high. It's enough to get by. It's not a source of pride. That's, that's got kind of got a rappy quality to it, doesn't it, you know? <laughs> Understanding isn't high. It's enough to get by. It's not a source of pride. <laughs> I'm having fun with my final sermon in three months. This is good. It doesn't, it doesn't keep working as I'm looking at the notes. It's just that, but that part, that part, if only I had thought in advance and wrapped that, you know, I spared you from that. Um, voice recognition is not like an accomplishment of human beings. It's like an aspect of our being. Ants don't have it. 
um, sheep do with shepherds and we do with God. That's what it means to have voice recognition to the voice of God. It's just an aspect of our being as human beings, although that is very counterintuitive to our modern notion of ourselves. In this sense, the traditional cultures are wiser than we are. Over the next year, wouldn't it be fun if we had like some three-minute testimonies from a wide range of people who shared a simple experience of like sensing God's voice in some way that was like meaningful to them and that, that covered a lot of different ways of hearing God's voice and, and weren't like a bragging, oh, like I'm super tuned into God. He talked to me here. He talked to me. He walks with me. He talks with me. You know, not that kind of a <laughs> testimony, but hey, I was in this situation and this, I had this dream or this thing, the song came on or I was read the text of scripture and I heard inside or I sensed and it had this huge impact on how my life went forward. Wouldn't that be cool over the next year because I, I, I know lots of you people and you hear God's voice. A lot of people, I, have, I, I could just rattle off lots of stories that I've heard of people who have heard God's voice and they're normal people. We could all strain less and we could all relax more and the not straining and the relaxing more would actually increase our capacity to hear God's voice. If we thought, you know, we're all the sort of people who can hear God's voice. It's just part of our humanity. Um, maybe it's actually happening more than I realize. And I just need to recognize that it's happening. Maybe I've had experiences of it, but I haven't been able to name it. Or I haven't realized that that's what it actually was. It's actually possible for someone like me. The, the really helpful thing about the voice metaphor compared to a word metaphor is we all know a voice can convey meaning without words, right? So these uh, Taiwanese uh, researchers, they developed an app called the Infant Cries Translator. And the way they developed the app is they recorded 200,000 crying sounds from 100 babies and they en ended up identifying four basic crying sounds that could be distinguished and that were universal, actually, from baby to baby. There's hunger crying, there's pain discomfort crying, there's wet diaper crying, and there's getting sleepy crying. And th this, this, um, this app, you can buy it, and it works like within an uh, accuracy of like 92%. Uh, for, for young babies, for infants, like newborns, the first couple of uh, uh, months of life. After that, environmental factors ch uh, affect how babies cry, and it's, it's harder to nail those four different um, kind of cryings. It's all through a voice, without words. I went to um, a Sigur Rose concert at Fox Theater in a pretty raw state in, in late uh, 2012 after losing my wife. And if you're not familiar, uh, Sigur Rós, um, Jeff is going to play a little Sigur Rós at the, in the closing um, music. So you listen in at the end of the service. You wanna, wanna, he's going to lay down a little Sigur Rós track. They're an Icelandic group. And their music is hard to define. The, the lead guitarist plays guitar with a, with a um, violin bow. And, and um, it's like immersive music. And at first I thought the lyrics were Icelandic because I couldn't understand them. 
And the people who took me to the concert said, no, that's not Icelandic. That is a, that's like a non-language. They're just using syllables. It's like structured speech that isn't any particular language. And during the concert, I mean, I, I've been to some concerts in my day. Um, and um, I saw Leon Russell in concert. I saw Joe Cocker in concert. I saw the band in concert. I saw the doors in concert. I've been to like four or five U2 concerts. I've been to a couple of Bob Dylan concerts. The U2 concerts, they're immersive. You're like, whoa, this is like, woo, this is happening. It's all surrounding you and the lights and it's like, wow, it's like a spiritual experience. Sigur Rós put them all to shame. I'm sitting there in this immersive music and I'm having like memories coming to mind. I'm like, I'm like, I'm having, I'm reflecting on my life in ways that are like verbal in my mind and ways that are just feeling. I'm sorting, I'm making sense of things. I'm getting conviction about what matters to me during this conference. I mean, there was some deep stuff going on. When it was over, I felt like, like cleansed of something and I couldn't even put into words what I was cleansed from. You know. There, there are ways of communicating that we need to be communicated with that are not just in words, that are not just the rational part of our, what, what if there are actually many different ways for God's voice to register with us? God's voice might register in our rational brain, might register in our feeling brain, or in our intuitive gut sense, might register in a dream, or on the wings of a song, or a piece of art, or in visual media. I mean, Scripture itself is a record of the many different ways that human beings hear God's voice. The people in Scripture are not just hearing God's voice, reading the Bible, you know. Most of them were in Scripture before there was a Scripture. They're having dreams. They're having visions. They're being led in all sorts of different ways by this God. So to limit God's revelation to the words of Scripture only is to actually dishonor the witness of Scripture. Like Psalm 19, the heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So God is speaking to us in all kinds of ways, all kinds of times, and it has different ways of registering in us because we're complex, mysterious beings. Um, the common critique of uh, Sola Jesus is that, well, give me a break. And this is the critique of like hearing God's voice. It's like, that is so subjective. I mean, that is so subjective. I mean, God could tell you to do anything. You could justify anything by saying, God told me that. Well, hello. Reading the Bible is also subjective. And it's not so difficult to get the Bible wrong. And to use our own biases as we read the Bible and to use our reading of the Bible to justify things that are just like things that are part of us or have been fueled in us by our culture. This is communication from any source is subject to misunderstanding. Mis communication is not like a science. It's, it's an art. 
That doesn't mean we despair of communicating, right? It, we have ways of reducing the error rate, rate in communication. Um, we compare what we're sensing to what we already know. So it, it never just comes in a vacuum, right? If we hear something that's like does, not consistent with what we already know, we subject it to more scrutiny, the, you know, the burden of proof for letting that into our, you know, trusted communication is higher. Um, we compare notes with others we trust. Communication happens in a communal context. So if like we're the only ones hearing something and no one else is hearing it, we subject it to greater scrutiny. If, if we're hearing something and we're not certain about it, you know, we, we, we tentatively act on it and we see how it works out and what fruit is born. And, you know, we don't just dive into the pool of any given message. Like all language acquisition is a process of experimentation, of trial and error. And that's just the nature of the beast. So, when we think of the sheep who recognize the shepherd's voice, we want to ask, well, where does the communication burden rest most heavily in that equation? Is it on the shepherd or is it on the sheep? You know, in our modernist, like, we're all there is in the universe, we just instinctively put the pressure on ourselves. All the burden is on me to hear God's voice. I somehow have to decode this. I have to break the code and figure out what God is saying, and I better be on my game. Well, it seems to me like the shepherd is more on the ball than, than the sheep in general. And the burden of communication is actually on the shepherd to communicate in a way the sheep can understand, and like with your dog. Is your dog thinking, oh, I need to figure out what the master wants, you know, and I have to figure, I have to learn English, you know. <laughs> no, the master's thinking, I got to figure out a way to get my will known to this dog and express my intentions to this dog. And let me try different things and see what it responds to. And oh, it feels like we made a connection. Good, let's, let's work that a little bit more. The burden is on the shepherd. My daughter teaches uh, first grade in, in uh, D.C. public schools. And the kids in her class come from like many different nationalities. Most are speaking English as a second language. Uh, just let me brag a little bit. Grace was a Division I athlete at American University. She made third team All-American. She worked her tail off as an athlete. Um, you know, their, their preseason workouts were especially brutal. Three a days in August <clears throat> throughout um, her season, there'd be weightlifting every day. Um, there'd be like hard running. There'd be hard practicing. All the athletes would have to soak in a ice bath for 30 minutes, sit submerged up to their waist in an ice bath for 30 minutes to be able to keep practicing at that level. She worked her tail off, and, and plus she had, had uh, her, you know, her workload to, to take care of. You know, she was in college. She calls me the other day from work, uh, just getting off work teaching these first graders, and she said, Dad, I have never been more exhausted doing something than teaching. This is taking all of my energy. The kids weren't going home saying, Mom and Dad, this is taking all of my energy, learning from Grace Wilson. They're like, we had a good time at school today. 
There is a greater burden on the teacher to teach than there is on the students to learn. There is a greater burden on the shepherd to communicate in a way that the sheep can understand than there is for the sheep to decode the mind of the shepherd. Relax, people. Chill. You're in good hands. Your part is small. His part is big. All the expertise, all the, all the burden, all the pressure, all the responsibility to communicate so that he can get through to people like this is on him and he knows us. And he knows us in our individual variation. He knows us each by name and he can speak, he can invent a language that only we understand. So we're going to close with a little uh, tutorial on, uh, I'm doing decent on time. Praise me. Uh, <laughs> you got to get it where you can, you know. Um, did you ever leave yourself a, vo a voicemail message and praise yourself? Um, yeah, I've done that. And it's hilarious, you know. Like I, I called myself by accident. I get the voicemail message and I said, Ken, you are an awesome pastor. I just want to thank you. Your message last week was so great. It just like changed my life. The funny thing is when you listen to that message afterwards, you get a little bump. You get a little, it, you know it's yourself saying that, but you actually get a little, you get a little charge out of it. So just, I'm, I'm, I'm letting you into my inner deepies right now. Okay. Aren't, I'm relaxed already, aren't I, on this uh, thing. So we're going to close a little t tutorial on uh, one particular method of tuning into the voice of God and uh, using scripture and the active use of the imagination. Um, so with practice, I'm just, we're just going to walk you through like how to, the mechanics of how to do it this morning with a few minutes. But um, once you learn the mechanics and try it and give it a little more time, it, it can deliver big time. The, the, the thing is called Lectio Divina, uh, which means divine reading. And for hundreds of years, the main way that uh, Christians <coughs> uh, interacted with scripture was through Lectio Divina. They didn't do an intervarsity Bible study, an inductive Bible study and, you know, outline the chapter and, and, and do the historical background and do a word study in the Greek and the Hebrew. Greek and Hebrew were not known, like, until the Reformation. Um, Lectio Divina was, like, the go-to way to engage with Scripture. And Lectio Divina is you just, you read over a portion of Scripture um, maybe a few times we'll use Psalm 23. So it's, it's a great go-to for Lectio Divina. Uh, you pick out like a scene in the, in the scripture that you're reading, a smaller chunk, a line, a word, a scene, and then you place yourself in the scene with your imagination and just let it unfold. Picture yourself in the scene that is depicted in the scripture and like literally like use your imaginative senses. Like, you know, if you close your eyes, you can see things, right, through the imagination. It's misty, it's not clear, but you can, and, and you can feel things and you can smell things. So you actually go through the senses when you're in a Lectio scene and you visualize it for a little while. You like, you try to imagine what the scene would actually look like and the colors and 
the figures and all that. And then you allow the, um, the feeling part, like the warmth of the sun on your skin, or if there are smells or there are sounds that are associated with that scene, you immerse yourself in the scene through the use of your imagination. <clears throat> and as you do that, you're opening up your brain in, in ways, and sometimes you will actually get like a message from God that's very direct for you in that context. So I, I did this with um, Le, uh, Tanya Lerman had developed uh, some sample Lectio Divinus on uh, guided meditation. Uh, she had one on Psalm 23. She's a professor of anthropology at Stanford. She's not a Christian, but she studies how Christians hear God's voice, and she figured it out. And she, she did like a classic Lectio Divina tape for students to do for some research, and I used it. I got hold of it. Um, I will, I'll, if you're in a small group and the group leader wants to do this, uh, email me this next week and I'll send you the, the Lectio and you can do it in the group. I'd make it available to everyone, but Tanya gave it to me saying, don't spread it widely because she used some music and she didn't get the copyright and all that. She doesn't want to get sued by whoever wrote Breathe, you know. Um, so uh, 30 minutes of this is pretty, pretty darn good. And I had a very specific instruction from Jesus in the Lectio Divina I did with uh, Tanya Lerman like a, a number of years ago. It was very, very helpful. So that's like the, the carrot on the stick, you know. But we're just learning the, the um, basics of how it got, goes. So let's, let's try it out, hey? Um, I'll read the Psalm 23. Probably just read it twice. As I'm reading it, just listen to it. And just notice what in Psalm 23 intrigues you, interests you, draws your attention or your heart is moved to. And then when we're done, take that little section with your eyes closed. Just re repeat it to yourself in your head and place yourself in the scene. Pay attention to the sights, the sounds, the smells, and let unfold what's going to unfold for a few minutes. So Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Now, one more time. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long.
And just pick out one of those scenes, place yourself in it, use your imagination to fill in the details. Lectio Divina. Just for, just for a quick little um, debrief here, a little survey. How many of you felt, um, ooh, I kind of like that. I, that felt good. I think I'd maybe like to try more of that. Raise your hand. Just to get a feel. Okay, so that's, that's pretty good. How many of you, and this might be the same, same group, um, how many of you felt a little anxious, like, oh, I wonder if it'll work for me. I, I wonder if I'm doing it right. I, you know, had those kind of... Uh, Anxious feelings or thoughts while you were doing it. Raise your hand. Go ahead, raise your hand so other people be encouraged that I wasn't the only one. Yeah, that's all very normal. That's because you're a modern person in the modern world. And the modern world tells you that you're not the sort of person who can, like, hear God's voice. And so you have to learn how to ignore those feelings and those thoughts. Um, they're going to come because you're a modern person. Congratulations, you're a modern person. But just learn to ignore them press through them and then they will diminish and then you'll be able to get to the goods if you do that. So there you go.